Good morning, Chapel family. It's good to see you after 30 days of looking at my family, my four teenagers. It looks really good to see some adults. (laughs) Really, really good. Now, we had a great time. Uh, It's been a a great honor and privilege, and just I'm extremely grateful to to the elders, to our staff for letting us kind of get away. Uh, The only way to explain sabbatical, for those of you that don't understand what it is, it's basically at one point, before I turned my phone off, I opened up all the apps and started deleting all the apps. Right, so each one of those apps was like a something that was running on the processor of that phone, and so as I start deleting those, the phone can start to run more effectively or more efficiently because you're closing out those things. Sabbath or sabbatical for like for me was like that, where I started closing out these mental uh, processes I've been carrying and carrying and carrying. Started closing those out so my mind could finally rest. My heart could finally rest so I could kind of recalibrate and realign myself with what God's wanting to do. So it's a great privilege. Our team did an amazing job. Uh, Pastor Maury Davis, the first week, if he said anything that offended you, you can email maury at maurydavis.com. Pastor Rusty, Pastor Jason, Pastor Brian, it's just great to have a great team of people here. One of the things about this church is I want to be the most empowering place on the planet, and it cannot be that if I'm in the way all the time. So it's always good to get out of the way so people can be empowered to lead and do what God has called them to do. So I just want to say thank you. If you would give our team a big round of applause real quick. Uh, and I'll piggyback those announcements for Adopt-A-Block. Adopt-A-Block, if you don't know what it is, it's just a once a quarter we go to West Florence uh, over by the Handy Rec Center, over in the Handy side, Cypress Point. And we just pour love into that community. We add value. We bring hope. We minister to kids. It's a fun event, uh, but it's just a chance that we get to make a difference in our community. We made a commitment to our city that we're going to pray for that community. We're going to invest in that community, and we're going to be in that community. And by doing so, we expect to see crime decrease Hope increase, education increase, families become stronger, and so we need your help to make that happen. So please make that a priority for next Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 6 as we start a new series today called Still Holy. So I'm going to take the next few weeks to unpack the holiness of God, and then I'm going to take a couple weeks to unpack the holiness of you and I in relation to God and what God expects of us in order to live like him. And so Still Holy is, is a message I don't believe is being preached enough. I believe that at the church in America specifically, not so much across the world, but in America, the church has kind of lost its way. I think we started navigating some paths 15, 20, maybe 30 years ago that we started navigating some paths that we thought would lead us to a better church to the seeker-friendly movement where if we just become more like the world, then maybe we can reach more of the world. Then we started preaching a sloppy grace message where people just need to hear the message of grace, and you can't understand grace unless you understand the holiness of God. And so we started taking these paths, and now we've ended up in a place in America where the church is weak, the church has lost influence, the church is no longer growing, the church is now in decline. We're starting to see uh, the failure in splitting and division of denominations like the Methodist denomination that was built on holiness. The Southern Baptist Convention is about to be in a split because they can't decide on what the mission of God should be because they've lost the holiness of God. I'm a firm believer, if you find yourself lost, You may want to stop traveling the direction you're traveling and go back and find the paths that led you to where you were successful or prosperous. And so uh, I love to hike. We hiked a bunch when we were in Haiti. And anytime you're you're trying to discover an old path, right, an old path, sometimes it's grown up. Sometimes there's dirt over the path. Sometimes it's hard to find. It takes more work to discover an ancient path 
than it does to walk on a modern path. Modern paths are paved in asphalt or concrete. There's guardrails, there's signs, there's directions. But ancient paths mean sometimes you have to get off the easy way to discover the old way that takes you where you need to go. And I believe God is going to do some things where he uses ancient paths to bring us to a new destiny. But in order to get to that destiny, we have to discover that ancient path. Path, And I believe that's what happens here in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. If you would stand to your feet as we read this together. You've, you've probably, if you've been in church at any point at all, you've probably heard this scripture. It says this, starting in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So if you don't like loud church, you're not going to like heaven at all. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Meaning the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. And then Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Father, we thank you that you have not left us nor forsaken us. The Father in our ways of man and which ways we try to invent ways to get closer to you, ways to make ourselves feel better, ways to make ourselves uh, feel better about our sin and our failures and our mistakes. That, Father, you've not left us. There's still a path of holiness we can follow. And, Father, I pray today for a supernatural revelation of the holiness of our King. Father, a revelation of the throne, a revelation of the glory, a revelation of the atonement. And Father, I believe it, I pray that it transforms us and it moves us and takes us to a new place of power, of peace, of love and glory for our King. And Father, we bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne. Now, we, we're not, you know, acquainted with thrones in our culture. We have the White House. We have the Oval Office, which is a com common equivalent maybe to a throne. But if you grew up in church at all, I, I didn't grow up in church, but I went to this church every once in a while, and there was a, a throne on the stage, right? So some of you grew up in a church where maybe there was a throne on the stage. It was a little bit higher than everybody else in the congregation, when I travel and preach sometimes, depending on the denomination, they'll have me sit on the platform higher than everybody else. And if you're not the preacher, you have to preach from a lower pulpit or a lower seat. But in our modern-day churches, we normally set the pastor on the throne. 
We set the pastor higher up. We set the preacher higher up than the normal believer. And in doing so, our eyes are on a man rather than on God. And he says, I saw God high and lifted up. And it's interesting, in the Bible, when you study the Bible, it's many times hard to figure out exactly when something was taking place. You may have a study Bible that gives you a timeline. But this is interesting because Isaiah timestamps this prophetic word God gave him. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. We know exactly when that was. It was 739 B.C. And so this event of King Uzziah dying was so important and so dramatic and so catalytic that it made sure everyone knew exactly when Isaiah was talking about. Because King Uzziah is not just any king. King Uzziah was the predominant king of this generation. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you can read all about King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a king who took over the throne at 16 years old. Could you imagine them giving the keys to the kingdom of Israel to a 16-year-old boy. I don't even want to give the keys to my car to a 16-year-old boy. And Uzziah gets the keys to the kingdom, and he reigns for 52 years. That's an entire generation of Israelites, meaning the only king they knew was King Uzziah. That's the equivalent of us, Lyndon Johnson, still being president of the United States of America. We had Lyndon Johnson, uh, Carter, Ford, Reagan, Nixon, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden. We've had seven presidents in the one term that Uzziah reigned. So all they knew was King Uzziah, and King Uzziah started out well. He pleased God. He built a financial prosperity in the king. The stock market was doing well. Their 401k was looking really, really Good. Employment was low. He rebuilt the military. The military was powerful. They had some incredible victories of defeating their enemies. There was peace. He tore down the idols and strongholds so that God could be worshipped and lifted up again. He started great. They loved King Uzziah. He was their favorite president, their favorite king. He was the man when it came to politics. But something happened after about 40 years. After 40 years of reigning and ruling in a way that lifted up the holiness of God, in a way of lifting up the plan of God, the principles of God, the word of God, the promises of God, at about the age of 40, he decides to go into the temple and make a sacrifice himself, bypassing God's word of saying the priest was the only one who could make a sacrifice. He let his success get to his head. He let his accomplishments make him think that he was on the same level as God was, and he could just rush into the presence of God. He could assume God's grace and assume God's mercy and assume God's forgiveness and do what he wanted to do because he'd been successful. And as he walks in, God says, what are you doing? Did you not remember that I'm a holy God? And there's a way to approach me in order to come into my presence? And this great king, had a great fall where God allows him to get leprosy, where now he's removed from the kingdom he built. Now he's living on the outside of the walls in a refugee camp 
full of lepers where no one can touch them. No one's listening to his great proverbs. No one's letting him lead them. He's all by himself. And then he dies a lonely death as a leper. And all of Israel, seeing King Uzziah, this great king, fall. Now they're worried about unemployment. Now they're worried about the stock market. Now they're worried about foreign enemies coming and taking over Israel. It looks like now that everything was successful. Everything was prosperous. Everything was good because King Uzziah was a great king. And if he's not here anymore, what's going to happen to us? So Isaiah uses King Uzziah to timestamp this. And I believe what God is trying to do. He's bringing Isaiah up into heaven. To see the throne of God so God can reveal to Isaiah the holiness of God so that Isaiah can reveal the holiness of God back to his people. He wanted Isaiah to see the real throne is in heaven. It is not on earth. He wanted Isaiah to see that God is still on the throne. He's still high and lifted up. Even though if Uzziah has fallen, if Uzziah is unholy, if Uzziah has failed, if Uzziah has not led the way he's supposed to, there's still a throne in heaven that dictates and determines everything that happens on earth. And so before God can do a new thing on earth, he has to give a fresh vision and revelation of who he is and his people. If you want to see God do something new in your life, if you want to see him do something new in our church, new in our community, new in America, it's not going to come by chasing rabbits down the past we've created. It's going to come from a fresh vision of who God is, to see his throne high and lifted up, that heroes will die, kings will die, presidents will die, Fathers will die. Mentors will die. Leaders will die. Theologians will die. Preachers will die. Pastors will die. Thrones will fall. Kingdoms will fall. Nations will fall. Churches will fall. But there's a throne in heaven that shall not be moved. And when your eyes are on the throne, when your eyes are on the throne, it steadies your heart, steadies your view. It steadies your perception, and it changes everything about how you look and how you see. Vernon McGee said this way, if we could see him today in that high and lifted up position, we would be delivered from low living. And I believe what we're seeing in America, we're seeing in our churches, that are, our churches in America are full of sin, sexual immorality, a lack of, of Bible beliefism, a lack of the power of the Holy Spirit. Our country, obviously, if you watch the news, you see everything happening in our country. And the reason is we have a view of God that he's just a little bit higher than me. But when I see him for who he truly is, high and lifted up and exalted, it will bring me up to where he is instead of trying to bring him down to where I am at. And that's exactly what God is trying to show Isaiah in this scripture. And also what it can show you is sometimes God will allow things that happen on earth. Sometimes God will allow things that happen in your life. Sometimes God will allow things that happen in a nation. Sometimes God will allow things that happen in a church to redirect our focus from here to there. He'll shake some things. There's a shaking in heaven 
as Isaiah walks in and sees this. There's a shaking. There's, there's an earthquake. The, the foundations are being rocked. And sometimes God will rock your world in order to get your soul back up to where it's supposed to be. And when it happens, it changes. So Isaiah's in this throne room of God looking at this throne. And his, his vision is in this moment in time where their hope has fallen, they feel broken as a nation, their king has passed away, who they place their hopes in, their dreams in, their financial success in, their safety in, their provision in, their security in. All this is happening, and now Jesus, God is showing Isaiah this new picture. And when he sees it, he begins to hear and see the seraphim singing a song called Holy, Holy Holy, 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 holy. That God is still holy. That even when your heroes fall, even when the pastor at the church you grew up in had a moral failure, even when the people you put your faith in and your trust in fall, God is still holy, holy, Holy. He has not changed just because we become modern. He has not changed because we have a new doctrine of grace. He has not changed because it's harder to live in a culture that's so sick. God has not changed. It says he changeth not in the King James. He's still holy, holy, holy. And he sees these seraphim. Seraphim is just plural for the word seraph. And seraph is an angel that looks like a serpent. So I'm already scared to go to heaven because there's snakes in heaven. They're serpents with six wings, six wings, three sets of wings. But there's also cherubim in heaven. The difference between seraphim and cherubim. Cherubim we see at the Garden of Eden once Adam and Eve are casted out there. They're guarding it with swords. You see them guarding the mercy seat. So the cherubim as angels are the protector of God's holiness. They stay at the feet of God, protecting his holiness. They stay at the mercy seat, protecting his holiness. They stay at the Garden of Eden, protecting the holiness of the tree of life. But the seraphim, they're not protectors or messengers. The seraphim, their whole job is to praise God. Their whole purpose is to continually praise God. It says they have these three sets of wings, two to cover their eyes as they fly around this throne, two to cover their eyes. They can't even look upon the holiness of God. Two to cover their feet to show that they're honoring him, just like Moses at the burning bush, take off your shoes, you're holy, to cover their feet, and then two to fly around with. So even the seraphim in heaven won't look upon God's holiness. They just fly around with their eyes closed saying, holy, 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 holy. For eternity's sake, crying out the same song over and over and over again. And Isaiah says, they're crying out holy. Then I see the train of the robe of my king fills the temple. Which is interesting dynamic when you start learning about history. That in, in ancient times, the king, when they conquered another king or another army, they would take his robe and they would attach it to their robe. 
It was almost like scalping back in the, the Cowboys and Indians day where they take a scalp. This was their scalp. They take the robe of the king they defeated. They would attach it to their robes, became a train. And so the more robes or the bigger the train means the more victorious that king was. was. And Isaiah says, I see his train was filling the temple. So this isn't a king that's ever experienced defeat. This is a king that his robe is filled. We don't know how big the temple in heaven is, but if it was just this room and God is sitting on the throne, you would be sitting and standing on the robe of God. You'd be sitting on the victories that God has accomplished on your behalf. And so when you enter heaven and you enter the temple, you'll literally be standing on the victories of Jesus accomplished for you. He says, I see the train and I hear them singing, holy, 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 holy. So depending on your background, holiness is a word that, that for you may conjure up preaching that was lacking grace. It may conjure up things that you can't do, which movies you can see, which you can't, how you should dress, if you need to wear a bun or you can wear your hair down, makeup or no makeup, dress or pants. Like many times we think of holiness as this thing of what you can't do instead of holiness being who God is. See, holiness isn't a list of things you cannot do. Holiness is a list of who God is. And when you understand who, what holiness is, you'll understand how incredibly powerful and loving and good and gracious our king is. You see, holiness is this, a good definition is this. Holy means to be distinct, separate, or in a class by itself. To be distinct, separate, or in a class by one's self. It actually means, in the Hebrew, it actually means to be cut, to be separate, to be cut. Which means you say a cut above that God is a cut above humanity. God is a cut above everything in heaven. God is a cut above anything you could ever dream of or imagine. He's a cut above anything you think is pure. He's a cut above that purity. He's a cut above or a class by himself. Wholly different. Separate. Not, not separate in a way where he's not close. He's separate and he's not like us, but he's not distant from us. He's holy, he's separate from Isaiah, but he's invited Isaiah in to his holiness. And so our king is a holy king. He's distinct, he's separate, he's a cut above, he's in a class by himself, he's completely different. His ways are higher than our ways. His love is deeper than our love. He's completely different than us, yet he draws us into himself. And the angels are saying, holy, 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 holy. Holy. See, holiness is not an attribute of God. Holiness is his defining characteristic. It's not like he's love and he's, he's good and he's sovereign and he's caring or he's kind or he's powerful, or he's victorious. And he's holy. No, it's, he's holy. And since he's holy, everything else falls into that. And so until you realize that God is not a God who is holy, he is the holy God, you won't understand holy and so it's not an attribute, it is who he is. And the angels start singing, holy, 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 holy. They begin repeating it. For all of eternity, they repeat the same song. Now I get tired after my kids listen to the same song twice in the car. But these angels never get tired of singing holy, 
holy, holy. Some theologians believe that, that three words together, holy, 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 it's repetition. Since in Hebrew, they didn't have a way to highlight or underline or boldface. They didn't have a way to emphasize something. They had to use repetition to emphasize it. So they emphasize holy, holy, holy. So if it was a modern version of the Bible, it would be bold-faced, capitalized, emojis, highlighted, anything you can think. It'd be the largest letters on the page saying holy, holy, holy is God. It's the repetition. Meaning we're emphasizing this above everything else. R.C. Sproul says you'll never see in the Bible the angels singing Love, love, love. You'll never see in the Bible them saying grace, grace, grace. You'll never see them in the Bible saying mercy, mercy, mercy. You'll never see them in the Bible saying sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. You'll never see all the characteristics we, we love and we talk about, the angels aren't talking about. So why are we talking about things that the angels aren't talking about? And why are we not talking about the things the angels are talking about? If we want to have a throne room Christianity where Jesus is high and lifted up, he is sovereign, he's powerful, he's loving, he's grace. If we want to see Jesus for who he truly is, we need to realign our lives back with what heaven is saying, what heaven is doing. They just kept repeating it over and over and over. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. In our churches, we're just saying grace, grace, grace. It's, it's amazing to me that the things we say are the things that benefit us the most, but the things that the angels are singing over God are the things that benefit him the most. And I think that what that tells us is that we've created a man-centered Christianity instead of a throne-centered Christianity. And so we worship the things that build us up, but we devalue the things that build God up. And until we get to a place we put God back in his rightful place, we'll never walk in our God-ordained destiny or power or glory that he deserves. And they're saying, holy, holy. The other way you can see this, this three times holy is the Trinity. They're either saying, the Father's holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. One theologian said they think that every time the angels surround the throne and fly around the throne, they think they're seeing a new aspect of God's holiness. And that for all of eternity, they'll see a different, almost like turning a diamond. Every time they go around, they see a new facet of how holy God is. But the Father is holy. The Spirit is holy. And I think what has happened is we've gotten away from the message of the Trinity and become a Jesus-only type doctrine in the American church, and in doing so, we've lost the throne, we've lost the holiness of the Father. What that means is, I've heard preachers, I've done this myself, is that the whole Bible points to Jesus. Everything's Jesus. All you need is Jesus. All you need, which is true, but the Trinity is one. And I think what's happened, there's a, there's a term in theology, it's called anthropophermism. Don't try to say it, you may cuss. It basically means since we don't know how God is, the Bible never tells us how God is. It just tells us what he's like. God can't even explain himself to us. There's not language for him to explain who he is. So he says, well, God is like fire. Well, God is, the Holy Spirit's like a dove. Well, God is like, so it says like, so this, this term means that since we can't explain God, we start ascribing human qualities to God so we can understand him. 
Since I can't understand a holy God, I'm going to start describing, well, you know, he's kind of like a, an earthly father, just a little bit better. Well, he, he's merciful, kind of like, you know, when you forgive your kids and messing up, he's kind of like that. And so in doing so, what we've done is we've lifted up Jesus since he was God in human flesh, and we've focused on the human side of God rather than the throne room side of God. What that means is two more theological terms is transcendence and eminence. Transcendence means God is much higher than us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His holiness is higher than our holiness. His righteousness, he transcends anything about us and anything we can think of. But eminence means God is close. That he's, Jesus was eminent. He was God in flesh. He's Emmanuel, which comes from the word eminence. We focus on the eminence of God. And so we have words like this, well, Jesus is my homeboy. Well, well Jesus, you know, Jesus is, uh, you know, the man upstairs to me. Like Isaiah didn't go up there and say, wow, this is my homeboy. The angels aren't saying, this is my best friend. No, they are saying he is different than us. He is way above. These are angels. And they're saying he's so far ahead of us. We can't comprehend him. And I think what's happened in our loss of the doctrine of the Trinity, we focused on Jesus because Jesus shows us the humanity side of God. But Jesus is no longer in the flesh. Jesus is now on the throne. And if we're going to see God move in a new way like Isaiah was about to see after Isaiah 6, we need to quit making God in our own image. And you know when you've made a God in your own image when he never disagrees with you. You know God is made in your own image when his political beliefs are your political beliefs. You know you made a God in your own image when everything you do that's wrong, there's grace for it, but when everybody else does it, there's no grace for that. So you know you made a God in your own image when he reflects your beliefs, your values, your failures, your mistakes, your desires. When your God looks just like you, you've probably got a God in your own image. And I believe in America, we've created an American God instead of a throne room God. We have a God who reflects American traditions, American qualities, American beliefs, American values. Whether they're good or bad, we ascribe them to God. And in order for God to do a new thing, just like with Isaiah, he has to bring him up and say, listen, Uzziah is dead. Your beliefs are dead. The nation of Israel is not built on Uzziah. It's built on this throne. And America is not built on the White House or Congress or Parliament or City Hall or volunteerism or activism or racism. America was built on the throne of God. In order to get back to what God wants for America, we have to get back to the throne. And the third, they're singing, holy, holy, holy. It's called a trihagion, which means just a song. It means thrice holy. Thrice holy. Thrice holy. Meaning God is not just holy. He's not just separate. Because everything in heaven has the word holy on it. Everything ascribed to God has the word holy on it. The holy temple. The holy candlesticks. The holy anointing oil. The holy priest. Everything. The holy Bible. Literally, if it is connected to God, it has the word holy on it. But God doesn't just have the word holy on it. He has the word holy, holy, holy. He's holy to the third power. 
Like you think of the highest level of holiness you can think of, and it's well beyond that. The angels in heaven see all the holiness of heaven. They see the holy temple, the holy altar. They see the holy river. They see the holy gates. They see everything's holy. But when it comes to God, they say, well, he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. You get to Revelation 4.8, which Pastor Jason read this morning. You get to Revelation 4.8. John gets called up into heaven. And John sees the throne. And he hears the angel singing, holy, holy, holy. There's probably at least 900 years between Isaiah's vision and John's vision. What that tells me is God has not changed a lick. And the angels are still singing the same exact song. God is still holy. Even if our culture is not holy, God is still holy. Even when you fall, God is still holy. Even when you're broken, God is still holy. Even when the world seems to be going ahead and growing in influence, God is still holy. He's still holy, holy, holy. And until you understand that he's still holy, 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 you'll never understand grace. So you can't preach grace without preaching holiness. Because what is Isaiah's response? Isaiah walks in to heaven, and he hears him sing the song, and here's what he says. He says in verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean, uh, in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's, it's interesting that you know, in many, many of our worship songs, it's like when I get to heaven, I'm just going to run and give Jesus a big sloppy wet kiss. When I get to heaven, I'm just going to run. I'm giving big high five. I'm going to dap Jesus up. No, no. Isaiah said, whoa, whoa. I, I, I don't belong here. I, I'm un, and the King James says he was undone. Means he was ruined in the he, he was ruined by being in the presence of God. He was undone. He was un, realized he was unclean. He became aware of his uncleanness. By being in the presence of a holy God. See, and I think what God was trying to do with Isaiah was before he could do a new thing in Isaiah, before he could do a new thing in Israel, before he could do anything in you, before he could do a new thing in America, before he could do a new thing in the shoals, he has to get the woe of God back in us. So if you want to see the wow of God, you have to get the woe of God back. We've lost the wow. Everybody says, well, why doesn't God do the miracles he used to do? Why would he do any miracles? Well, why isn't God doing this or doing that? Why would he? Look at our culture. Look at our churches. Why? If we want to see God do the wow, we must find the woe. Mark Batterson said it like this. My favorite author said, we have lost the wow of God because we've lost the woe of God. And his perfect holiness helps us appreciate his amazing grace. See, we cannot understand the depths of grace until we understand the depths of his holiness. See, until you realize the gap between you and God, you'll, under, you'll never appreciate what God did to fill the gap. And if anybody had the right to boast, these seraphim who were flying around, they had never touched sin, they never went to the wrong movie, they never wore the wrong clothes, they never missed church, they're literally worshiping 24-7 for all of eternity. If the seraphim and Isaiah, who's not like some of the prophets we've seen about, Isaiah was a holy prophet. He lived right. He was connected to the political society. He lived well. He was connected. He was holy. He was moral. He was doing all the right things. If anybody had the ability to go up and say, 
You know, I, I belong. Yeah, I've done good, Jesus. You know, I, look at my Sunday school record. I got all the gold stars. I've done well. Look at my car. My, all my playlists, all my playlists are Maverick City. God, look, look, look at, I, I tithe. God, I do my Bible reading plan. God, I serve. I worked in kids' ministry. You know how hard that is, God. Like, like he didn't go up there and start saying, whoa, whoa. Now he said, no, no, whoa. If anybody had the, the nerve to brag, but he said, no, I'm undone. Man, I'm unclean. I'm unfit to be here. See, I think when he was exposed to the holiness of God, he started appreciating the invitation to be invited into the presence of God. And until you rediscover the woe, you're never going to be wowed. When you understand the woe, I get to pray. When I pray, I'm entering the throne room of heaven. Like, I don't deserve to be in heaven. I don't deserve to be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy king. I don't deserve to be in the pure environment of the presence. of. I don't deserve it, but I get to be here. Whoa. You mean I get to pray? The guy who rebelled, the guy who was sinful, the guy who was in the world, I get to pray to a holy God? Man, I get to preach? Whoa. Like when you understand the holiness of God, it creates a woe in your heart, so then you're wowed by God. J.D. Greer, so all, all worship is, is an awe of God connected to an intimacy of God. That's all worship is, is this awe and wonder of God. This awe and wonder of who he is. Max Lucado said this way. He said, you don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein because you can <laughs> write down H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect. See, the holiness of God is a mirror for us to see where we are. So we have four teenagers. They check themselves in the mirror all day long. And now that we have phones with the reverse camera, they just flip it over and they look at themselves in their phones. They may not be taking a selfie. They're just checking their makeup. I'm talking about RJ, not the girls. They're just checking themselves. Why? Because when you stand next to somebody, you don't see yourself, you'll think you're doing pretty good. Like, I think I'm in shape until I see somebody who's actually in shape. I think I'm smart until I'm around people that are really smart. I, I think I'm a, I'm a good leader until I'm around people who are really good leaders. See, when you're in the presence of somebody who's better than you, it exposes where you are at. And so here's Isaiah. He's in the presence of God. And it's not like he's starting to say, oh, yeah, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. See, when we look at ourselves, we don't look at God. We look at other people. I'm doing pretty good. I don't drink as much as they drink. Man, I'm a better husband than they are. Man, I'm a better churchgoer than they are. See, God doesn't ask you to look at other people to determine where you're at. He asks you to look at the throne of God to determine where you're at. And that is a never-changing standard. That doesn't change just because the liberal left thinks something should change. That doesn't change just because the political right thinks it should change. It doesn't change because the throne is not being moved. And so when you look upon the holiness of God, it shows you who you truly are. And what's incredible was Isaiah in this scripture. If you read chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah is pronouncing woes against Israel. Woe are you. 
Woe are you that are doing X, Y, Z. Woe are you who are worshiping idols. Woe are you in sexual immortality. Woe are you homosexuals. Woe are you pro-choice people. Woe are you. He starts getting all these woes. He's a judgmental, woeful preacher. But then as soon as he's in the presence of God, he's not casting woes against anybody else. He's saying, woe is me. See, when you're in the presence of God, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. You're not focused on them. You're focused on him. And in my depth of hearts, I feel like we as the American church, we as the church, we're in a Isaiah, Isaiah moment. What that means is this. I believe the church has become more of an Uzziah mentality than an Isaiah mentality. Uzziah ran into the temple to worship. He assumed God's grace. He assumed his mercy because he had done a lot of good. He had some accomplishments. He had some achievements. He had some success. He had some morals. He had some friends. He had the abilities. He had some things. So he thought, since I'm successful, and I look good, I look moral, I look like I'm a good Christian, I look like, then I can just rush in, worship God, and rush out. Sounds just like Sunday morning for 95% of America. I'll rush in the church, I'll get my offering, I'll worship God, then I'll rush home and beat all the Baptists to lunch. Well, I don't think I should do this, but I, you know, God is merciful, God is gracious, so if I do this, God is a, a God of grace, so he, he'll forgive me later on. You're assuming his grace. You're assuming his mercy. And I believe the American church is at a pivotal moment between Uzziah and Isaiah that we must embrace. Isaiah, instead of assuming, he's woe is me. Man, God, I'm just happy for the invitation. I'm just happy that you invited me up here to see the throne. I'm just, I'm wowed by the fact I get to see the worship in heaven. He didn't assume God's grace. He said, woe is me. And I think if you're going to see God do what you want God to do in your life, it's going to come more from an Isaiah mentality than an Uzziah mentality. Woe is me. If we want to see the wow of God, we got to get the woe of God back. And it's interesting, you know, God is holy Isaiah's obviously unholy. He's in heaven. Woe is me. He's groveling. He's kneeling down. Woe is me. But God's not a God who says, huh, that's where you deserve to be. I'm holy. You're unholy. You should stay down. Look at God's response in verses 6 through 8. He says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal they had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he's touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. What's incredible about this scripture is God is closing the gap between his holiness and Isaiah's unholiness. But two, there's an altar in heaven. There's an altar in heaven, just like in the temple, just like in the tabernacle where there's an altar where there's continual sacrifice. Where on the day of atonement, they sacrificed the unblemished lamb for the atonement of the sins of the people. There's an altar in heaven that I believe the angels carried Jesus' blood and placed on the altar for our atonement and our salvation. 
There's an altar in heaven, and every time we make a sin, there must be an atonement upon that altar. And this altar is so holy that the seraphim can't even touch the coals upon the altar. They use tongs and take the tongs and place the coal upon the lips of Isaiah and say, your guilt is taken care of. The reason the church deals with anxiety and depression and guilt and shame is because we've never been touched by the holiness of God. We've been touched by the grace and mercy. Just raise your hands so you can feel better for the day. But until you've been touched by the holiness of God, you won't realize that you're now holy. Until you realize you're holy, you won't live the way you're supposed to live. So you keep walking through cycles of shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and depression. But once you've been touched by the holy fire of God, everything changes. Everything changes. See, even though God is holy, he's gracious. Even though he's separate, He's not distant. He brings Isaiah in. And I want to say it this way. Jesus is not the one who condemns us for being unholy, but he is the one who provides a way for us to become holy, and that's why we need a fresh touch of holy-filled grace. And once Isaiah is touched, since his guilt is done for, he's atoned for, just like when we say yes to Jesus, something happens in the heavens where God is touching us with the holy coals of fire from the altar of Jesus. And when you're touched by God, it shifts your destiny. It shifts your future. It shifts everything about your life from a touch of God. Not a church service, not, not saying a prayer, but when God touches you, it changes you. And when God touches you and he changes you, he expects that change to change things around you and to change people around you. Because as soon as God touches him, here's what he says. He says, whom shall we send? Who shall go for us? Now, granted, Isaiah has been preaching for five chapters now. So Isaiah has been preaching for five chapters. And now in Isaiah 6, he's saying, whom shall we send? Who shall go for us? See, I believe Isaiah in chapters 1 through 5 was preaching for himself, not for God. And there's a lot of things we do for ourselves, a lot of serving others we do for ourselves to make ourselves feel better. A lot of things we do that we think we're doing for God, that we're really doing for ourselves to, to build up our reputation, our self-esteem, build up our pride, build up our ego. But in chapter 6, once he's touched by God, God says, whom shall we send? Who shall go for us? See, you can't go for God until you're holy. Because until you're holy, you're reflecting the wrong image to those you're going to. And it's almost like once he says, woe is me, God, the Trinity says us, I think God says, now that I got you where I want you, if I could have you in the woe moment, I can wow your socks off. Now that I got you in a moment where you realize where the throne sits, now I can use you. See, God cannot use you until you're at a place where you're wowed and woed by him. And as soon as he's at this moment, it's God is saying, now I got you where I want you. Now I can use you to send you back to remind the people that even though Isaiah's died, I'm still here. And the throne is still holy. And so if you want to be wowed by God, you have to get to a moment where you're woed by him. That you're woed, that God would invite me in. 
that God would allow me into his presence. God would allow me to be closing that gap between his holiness and my holiness, not by my efforts, not by my achievements, not by my political beliefs, not by my spiritual beliefs, only by the blood of Jesus is the gap closed. Not my blood, not my might, not my ability, but only by Jesus. Whoa. Now I'm wild. I want you to stand to your feet just all over the room real quick. I want to take a minute because if we cannot get this right, we cannot keep walking in the Uzziah circle of rushing into the presence of God, assuming his grace and rushing out. Rushing in, assuming his grace and rushing out. God is still holy. His standard today is the same as it was in the book of Isaiah. So the only way I make that standard is by invitation by the blood of Jesus. And once we get to that point where we realize, like Isaiah, God has invited us us into something. And this something is separate. It's distinct. It's a cut above. It's a class above everything else. He's invited us in. He's drawing us towards his holiness. It changes our perspective, changes our outlook, and changes our life. And that's when God can begin to move again. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back into worship just for five minutes. But this is your your woe moment. This is your moment at the throne. And if you need a visual, this this throne is up here. But I'm going to open up the altars down front. I want you to have a moment where you're getting back You're allowing God to redirect your focus back to the throne, away from your good works, away from your church legacy and heritage, away from your political beliefs, away from your sinful nature, away from your mistakes, away from your fears, away from your worries, and back to the holiness of God. And I believe once you see a glimpse of the holiness of God and you realize he's touched you with his holiness, you'll begin to see changes all throughout your life to begin to radiate.